decades, God's church has been told that during the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, as it really means, because it's a synonymous word, that we are portraying, or we are acting out, being already in the kingdom. Hundreds of sermons have been preached about what it's going to be like in the kingdom, the way we ought to act toward each other in the kingdom, God's law will be in effect, etc. And time and again out of the pulpit we have heard that we are enacting, or we are play, playing out, or portraying, already being in the kingdom of God. The only scripture where you can see what God had to say about booths in any detail at all is in the very last part of Leviticus 23. Let's turn to that. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 39. Also, in the fifteenth day, the seventh month, a few days ago when the feast began, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the eternal seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day there shall be a Sabbath, and sometimes a weekly Sabbath falls in between as it is this year. The final holy day will be Monday. And you shall take you on the first day the boughs or branches of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook, and you can use a little willows to kind of wend among the boughs and tie them together and make a hogan like the Plains Indians used to do. You shall rejoice before the eternal your God seven days. Now one thing, a little hogan or a little booth made of palm fronds or oak leaves or willows doesn't have is an indoor toilet, does it? Another thing it doesn't have is an indoor shower or bathtub. It doesn't have double ovens, electric stoves, electric can openers, or even electric lights. A lot of things it doesn't have. It doesn't usually have a carpet on the floor. It doesn't have a doorknob or a door so you can lock it up. It's a really ramshackle, temporary dwelling place, the likes of which you would see tumbling down the hills above Rio de Janeiro and some of the other horrible cities of the world like Bangkok or over in India and Calcutta and some of the horrible, blighted, poverty-stricken parts of this world where people live in little hovels that they've been able to build out of everything they can scavenge out of garbage dump. And you've seen places like that, perhaps in Mexico, where they're living in a bunch of tin and cardboard. Over in India, it happens to be a fact that if a building crew comes along on the highway and lowers into place a huge big piece of sewer pipe, the minute the truck departs, a family moves in. So what are we doing living in temporary booths? What did God say is the purpose for the Israelites to do this? Now notice it also says that this entire series of beautiful festivals and holy days had to do with God's convocations, commanded assemblies, throughout the season, in seasonal progression, that they were to command not only in the wilderness, but after they had entered into the Promised Land. And that from that time on, I think Mr. Dart made reference to that, he and I have discussed what he was going to preach and what he has been preaching as he went along to visit with the various festival sites, and talked about the detailed offerings that were offered during the Feast of Tabernacles. We go on to read, You shall keep it a feast, verse 41, unto the eternal seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Now we get the real inside information. You shall dwell in booths seven days. How long did the Israelites dwell in booths? When they were in the wilderness from the Red Sea to the River Jordan. 
Forty years, forty long years they dwelt in temporary tents, booths, things that they could make out of animal skins, wool, whatever, fabrics and other things they had like tenting material. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, natural born Israelites. That your generations, ah, here it comes. So here's the lesson. Here's what we're to learn. That your generations that are coming along later, later generations, hundreds of years from now, may look back and they may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. You're to dwell in a booth so you remember I made your parents to dwell in a booth. That's all it says, isn't it? Now, where do we get out of that? that we are to go from a permanent home, wherever we live, move into a little temporary domicile, be it one we rent temporarily from somebody who owns a motel, or be it an RV, or a camper, or a tent, and we come to these services and we celebrate what is called the Feast of Booths, and that's all it really means, the Feast of Little Domiciles, the Feast of Tabernacles. The word tabernacle doesn't mean the huge building where the Mormon Tabernacle Choir performs. And the tabernacle is not a great, huge metal building up in Big Sandy. And this building is not the tabernacle. The word tabernacle has been misapplied to huge, big buildings, but in fact it means a little booth. A booth like you'd open up at the fair, a little booth you'd move into and have maybe a six by ten space in there, like a small tent you could erect in the backyard. If you were to go at this question in the same way you might approach any other question in the Bible and simply get out your Young's and Strong's concordances and just start paging through there and come to the place where it says tabernacle and look up every scripture in the Bible where it talks about a booth or a tabernacle, it would be rather interesting what you would discover, as we shall discover together as we go along. Now, let me ask you another question. What is your most precious possession? Unfortunately, we heard uh, of a family that had a fire recently, and of course the first thing they want to do is get those dogs out of there, because they've got some precious little poodles. And Earl and Shirley Timmons had a fire that was, I think, of an electrical nature somewhere in their home, and the clouds of smoke were already down about that far from the floor, and he was rushing back in, grabbed the poodles, and. He goes back in and tries to save some other things and looks around and one of the little poodles followed him back in. But you know, if you ever had a house fire, most people would say, you know, get the kids, right? Or get the dog or get the cat. They can't stand to have any living things, certainly their own children, left in there. Now, if they've got the kids, the cat, and the dog or whatever out, what is the next thing most people think of? Give me a little help on this. Well, yeah, somebody said clothes. What else? Photos, that's a good one. Now, if you're on a quiz show, there are things that you cannot replace, and that's the old picture box with the family album of the snapshot when Granddad had the grandson on his knee, and Granddad's dead now, right? Or maybe the VC today it's modern, VCR. Now you got, when you got a 30-year-old son, you got to picture him crawling along, or maybe you surprised him on the toilet, and that's precious. Everybody likes to watch that. You don't want to let these priceless possessions get away. You've got pictures of... Kids doing the things kids do, you know, like, what was that, when they're in their crib, and uh, you want to save the pictures, the photos, the family album. Or you'd save the most precious possession you've got if you've got a fine painting in its original Goya or whatever, you sure want to save that, wouldn't you? There are people that have a painting worth more than a house they put it in. 
What about grandma's old hand-me-down crockery that dated back to 1840? Well, you'd, you'd think of the most valuable thing first. I mean, you can replace a bed or furniture or clothing, but some things you've got in your home that are personal to you that probably wouldn't be that much value to it. Who cares about your pictures if they lived around the block? You know, they don't care. A bunch of pictures on me left is free. But if they're valuable to you, you'd want to save them. We've heard people say, I'd give my right arm if I could have that. Now, you wouldn't really when they came to take it off. But there have been people who have awakened in bed during war, and they've come to in a hospital bed, and they're lying there, and they kind of vaguely begin to see the ceiling and the walls and realize that there's some tubes coming into their body, and they survived the horrible explosion they experienced, and their right foot itches, and they can't nurse, shoot, my right foot is killing me. Uh, sorry, sir, but maybe you better take a look down. And the right leg is missing just below the hip. You ever heard of people who think their foot itches and the foot is not there anymore? Because the nerves that are severed make them think there's an itch in their foot. Gentleman here in the second row, uh, Max here, has lost a leg and is wearing a prosthetic leg because he had an accident, I think, connected with the railroad. And he knows exactly what that is like, to lose a leg. Now, you can talk to him and you know exactly what his heart is and who he is and that he is here. His leg's not here. It was destroyed, done away with. I guess they burn those things when they take off a section of a human body and the hospital has certain regulations about disposal of human tissue. Now, as macabre as it sounds, have you ever seen pictures of people who lost both arms and both legs? I have on television. I saw a picture of a lady one time that had a paintbrush in her mouth and they had the palette right in front of her on the, on the bed and with her head. She did beautiful art. Flowing out of the mind that was that lady was this artistic ability that she was able to do with holding a paintbrush in her mouth and making strokes and painting. So I guess if you wanted to really get bizarre, you could say that you could lose both arms and both legs and both eyes and half of your stomach, and they could sew in part of a goat's stomach, and they could give you a heart transplant, you could have somebody else's heart take out your liver and your spleen and one lung, and you would still be there. All these parts missing, but you would still be there, because who are you? And where do you live? You all know where you live. You live between your ears, behind your eyes, in the frontal lobes, up here in this casca, as they call it in Spanish this bone that encases your most vital possession, your most precious possession, your mind, your human spirit, and the new creature in Christ, if you're converted, that has been placed with that human spirit. Job 38, it tells us, I won't turn to it, that, quote, there is a spirit in man. Let's turn to Matthew 10 and verse 28, see what Jesus Christ said. You know, for many, many years the church shied away from this scripture because we used to take such great issue with the word soul. We don't want people to think in the traditional mainstream fundamentalist concept of the immortality of the soul. 
And that is true, there is no such thing as an immortal conscious person that sort of steps out of the body and watches the body in the funeral beer and watches it being put in the ground and flips off to one, depending upon whether you're a Baptist or a Catholic. If you're a Catholic, you go to Limbus Patrium, Limbus Infantium, or just Limbo generally, just flitting around, hope you pray hard down there, folks, I'm getting tired of it, I want to go on to beatific vision. If you're a Baptist or a Methodist, you get to go directly to heaven. If you're an atheist, I guess it's like Madeline Murray O'Hare, the fellow said about her one time, here she'll be when she dies, all dressed up, nowhere to go. Uh, atheists don't have anywhere to go, but all the Baptists and Methodists think they're going to go to one of two places, and of course all of them think they go directly to heaven. Now because we have wanted to say that that isn't what the Bible says, and the word soul in the Old Testament and the New Testament does not mean an immortal something. We go to great lengths to show what the Hebrew and the Greek words mean. You all know that the one main word out of the Old Testament in the Hebrew language for soul is nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H. That it is used five times of lower life forms in the first chapter of the book of Genesis before it's ever applied to man. And you know that it says in Ezekiel 18, 4 and 20, the soul, the nephesh, that sinneth, it shall die. All right, enough of that. We have gone to such lengths to debunk the concept of the immortality of the soul that many of you, brethren, who have been subjected to that repetitive teaching need to be re-educated to understand, nevertheless, there is something inside of you that man can not destroy. Christ said so. Matthew 10, he said, verse 26, Fear not, there is nothing covered, it shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what you hear in the ear, that preach upon the housetops. And the consequence of fulfilling that commission, which I referred yesterday, and the spotlight that is going to zero in on you, and the persecution that is going to come, and fear not them which kill the body. Notice the context. Preach the word and don't fear if it costs you your life. That's the context in which this statement should be understood. But are not able to kill the soul. The soul. Now, there are three words that are used over in 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter, verse 23, for example, that he prayed God would keep their whole body, soul, and spirit until the coming of Christ. And that is Soma, and then Suke and then pneuma. Now, pneuma, we know from pneumatic, pneumonia, has to do with air and can be rendered air, wind, spirit, mind, and in several different ways in the New Testament is so used. Suke can be life or being, life principle, and is also rendered in other ways. Is he saying then that I pray God will keep your whole body and your life and your life? and preserve it until Jesus Christ comes. If you're trying to make pneuma and suke mean the same thing, then that is a really ridiculous, repetitive statement that the Apostle Paul made and contradictory on its face. But Jesus said, Fear not them which killed the body, the soma, but are not able to kill the soul, the suke, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is a different kind of fire. That's a fire that God is going to kindle. You read of that in the second chapter of Second Peter, 
of how eventually the elements being on fire will melt with fervent heat. Jesus talked about the grave, and he used the Greek word Hades. And the translators have taken the word Gehenna, and the only one place where the word Tartaru, that's another subject, appears that is dealing with spirits in prison or fastened by God's power to this earth. But there are dozens of places where the word Hades is used in the New Testament, and it always means grave, and never, never means anything to do with infernal regions or a fire. But Gehenna, that was the local garbage dump. The infernal, eternal fires that were smoldering and burning, burning up trash, the bodies of animals that were unclean, even dead criminals that were thrown down there, a very noxious area in Jerusalem. And, of course, they could look right across by the Valley of Hinnom, which is down just a little bit south there of the city of Jerusalem, and they could see the smoke coming up. And even as Jesus said, you will be perished or you'll be thrown in and you'll perish in Gehenna, they could look over there and there was Gehenna. That's like saying today, you'll perish in the, uh, the dump, the burning dump, the trash heap will burn you up. They weren't theologians. They didn't have to go around and try to figure out what he meant. They could look over there and see the Valley of Hinnom or Gina or Gehenna burning, smoldering continually. Now, let's not back away from this and play games with it. Let's understand what it's telling us. You possess something inside of you man can not destroy, don't you? says so right here. That's why it's telling you who you ought to fear. Now, this is worth a whole sermon just as an adjunct, and I don't intend to do that, but it talks about those who all their lives were subject to sin and all of the pulls and tugs of human nature through fear of death. That's why I've gone out of my way in many booklets and articles and broadcasts and so on to try to inform and to educate people about death. What is death? What does it mean to die? I have a booklet entitled, Afraid to Die, question mark, because death is that yawning, awesome black chasm from which many people think there is no return. It is a fearsome, a fearsome, I'm sorry, revolting, repugnant thing to imagine death. And unfortunately, many Christians, having not overcome their fear of death, were not able to receive it in the same way Christ did the same way Stephen did, the same way Paul did. I know the time of my departure is nigh. Stephen, who says, Forgive them, Father, as a type of Christ. They know not what they do. Lay not this sin to their charge, even as he is being stoned to death. What courage, what utter lack of fear. Because, you see, Stephen had already entered into the burning house and come back out with the most precious possession. What is that precious possession? What is the most precious thing you own, worth more by far than your home you left to come here to the feast, or grandma's crockery, or the picture album, or your jewelry, or anything else? It is your soul, in the meaning in which Christ lays it out for us here, or your suke, your life, meaning your innermost being where you dwell, because what is implied here? is the new creature in Christ, which the Satan the devil cannot destroy, man cannot destroy with cudgels or bullets or bombs or guns, or with any other method by which a human being can be put to death. Only God can destroy, or you could abort with your own decision. And there is an obvious analogy there between human birth and fetal development, coming to partition or full term and being born of the new creature in Christ that is dwelling in really a clay vessel. 
Notice over in Mark 8 and verse 34. Let's turn to that. Mark 8 and verse 34. If you look at this very carefully, at first glance it may seem to be a little bit enigmatic. We read over it very, very quickly, but really there's some deep meaning here. When he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, that deny your physical fleshly appetite, your desires, your lusts, your passions, your desire for the great good things in life. Every single time Jesus Christ offered salvation to someone, the young nobleman, the young wealthy man, his own disciple, he said, leave it all. Drop your nets, leave your millions, sell all that you've got, and come and follow me. It was not a matter, I only want a bunch of poor people in rags traipsing along behind me without a, as they say, a sou is the old French word in their genes, or a penny to their name. That isn't what he meant at all. It is a matter of your values. Let go all the tinsel-wrapped, prepackaged, plastic society in which you live with its glimmer and dazzle. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. Get your values straightened out. How long did it take me to do that in the course of a sermon? That clap is a lot longer span than your lifetime in eternity. Your human physical lifetime dwelling in this tabernacle is going to go whizzing by faster than the Feast of Tabernacles did in 1963. How many of you have attended 40 feasts? I have. I attended the very first one when I was a boy. You know where we observed the feast? In our living room in Eugene, Oregon, with just my dad, my mom, and their family. When my father discovered he ought to begin to keep it. It took him a year or two to begin to convince some of those hard-headed, stiff-necked Oregon farmers they ought to keep it. And eventually, when I was a young lad, we would go up to a little resort up in the Oregon hills called Belknap Springs, and there'd be maybe 35 or 40 people on the whole face of the earth that were keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. God led my father, Herbert W. Armstrong, to discover the necessity for observing these festivals, and today, thanks to God, many different increments, even of the original old parent church, the Church of God's Seventh Day, are beginning to keep God's feast after all these 40 or 50 more years of knowing or of hearing at least, maybe not understanding, maybe not receiving or accepting, but hearing that they ought to keep those festivals. I don't remember one thing about the Feast of Tabernacles, 1947. But it, it, it was seven days long. I missed the Feast, 1948. I was in the Navy. I missed 49. I missed 50 and 51. I remember a little bit about 1952 in Seagrove Springs. And really even less about 1953 in Big Sandy, Texas. And each one of those festivals coming along year after year were eight days, seven days plus the great final day. And I remember virtually nothing about some of them. They all just blend in. Your life goes by so quickly. In Mark 8 and verse 34, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples, he said, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. It's a matter of dropping your values that are physical, temporal, earthly, transitory, that aren't going to last very long. Cars, homes, vacations, double ovens, boats, playthings, Kawasaki's and whatever they are, Harley-Davidson's, all the things upon which we place our hearts and minds and without which we cannot live. 
People have to have these things. I'd give my right arm for that Cadillac. The game show comes on. You have won a Cadillac. Well, if you look at the values of people and you look at what Christ is saying here, it's a matter of value, isn't it? Whosoever will save his life, that means his physical being, shall lose it. If your value is hang on, project yourself, preserve yourself, protect yourself, last, stay alive and stay young. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake. That's martyrdom, isn't it? The only way you lose your life for the sake of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is because you stand there and preach his word in his name and people hate you for it. Shall, and for the gospel's sake, the same, shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world? When is Hilton going to quit building hotels? When is Sam Walden going to quit building Walmart and Sam's warehouses? Is he doing that because he just feels so sorry for all these impoverished people he wants to put a cut-rate cheap store in their neighborhood? And the Marriott family are building hotels because they know folks have got to have a place to sleep. And Exxon's opening up new gas stations because they know they want to make it more convenient for people to just stop in and get some Exxon. Everybody doing this for the benefit of civilization and society. Or is it that multi-multi-millionaires can never get enough? What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, he's talking about something immortal, eternal, but it is not the classic idea of the soul that is conscious apart from the body that is taught by the Baptists and Methodists. It is the spirit of man, the human spirit, combined with God's Holy Spirit, which creates a new creature in Christ. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? People have said, I would give my right arm if I could have that Cadillac. What will you give in exchange for your soul? Why? There isn't anything you could give, but you would give everything, wouldn't you? Your home, your car, and your life. To preserve and to protect the real you that is there inside a sort of a Hot, if you will. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul was saying that he wanted to remain alive as long as he possibly could, but he knew the time was going to come when he would not be here in this flesh any further. And he told people that his desire was to go ahead and depart and to spiritually, at least, be with Christ. But notice what he said about the priceless possession we all have, verse 1, chapter 4. Seeing we have this ministry, we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. And he said, if our gospel is hidden, verse 3 and 4, it's hidden in them that are lost, in whom the God of this world is blind to the minds of them do not believe, lest the light, the glorious light of the gospel of Christ should shine unto them. Notice in verse 7. We have this knowledge, this treasure he's talking about. We possess this treasure, Jesus Christ, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, the previous scripture, has shined in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We possess this knowledge, this begettle. It is not yet a rebirth, it is a begettle, a treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. 
Now, if you were walking along Booth Row, people are out here and they build booths out of all kinds of fronds and ferns. You'd say, that's a pretty good-looking booth. They, they would all be different, wouldn't they? Somebody would add some little touches, maybe a sprig of cedar or something over the door. Somebody else who lives in a slovenly area with a couple of old junk cars and two refrigerators and a bunch of junk that they threw out the back door years ago, doesn't care one way or the other, he'd have a sloppy booth. You wouldn't even want to go near the place. But other people would have the neatest looking booth you've ever seen, about four layers of palm thatch and so on, but it still wouldn't last very long, would it? Now you can look at each other. I'd say that uh, I'm 61. How many of you think I've got, and don't raise your hand, I'm just talking here for a moment to make things clear. How many people think I've got a good 20 years of vital, vibrant activity left, fairly free of physical debility? I'm not sure about that at all. I'm not sure I'll be bouncing around and still playing a little bit of basketball and getting up to Colorado at age 81. I have no guarantee of that. How long is 20 years? Well, to me, if I crank it back from 41 to 61, that was the fastest two decades I've ever seen go by in my life. I don't know where it went. It's phenomenal to me how fast all those years have slipped away. You know, like the old statement, "Me is too soon old, soon too late schmop. Well, we are too soon old, and many, many people come up to me and will tell me I'm in my 80th or 86th. This little lady this morning was 86, and she's here at the feast and doing fine, having a great time. My dad was 93 and a half. People tried to make a doctrine out of my father remaining alive until the second coming of Jesus Christ. My father didn't believe that deep down in his heart, even though he made a great deal about the fact that he came back from a minor little heart attack. He said he died, but in fact, to the count of about six or seven, he let out a little cry, and the nurse was there that quickly and began to blow in the tube, and he was resuscitated immediately. He was not dead by any means. I'm not even sure his heart completely stopped, but I won't argue that point at this time. The point is that people began making a doctrine out of the idea that my father had to remain alive humanly and physically, and my question is, why? Christ didn't, Peter didn't, Paul didn't, Stephen didn't. Now, when I go to England, if I go to Westminster Abbey, and I walk in there and see the tombs, and I see the placards on the huge slabs of stone that are people of whom I had read and read in history when I was growing up in Eugene, Oregon. I go to some of the old basilicas and some of the old monuments and buildings in Paris, in Rome. I read in my history of all the great things and the tumultuous, climactic battles that took place like at Arbella in the past. I read of the Persian phalanxes and Alexander the Great who sat down and wept at about age 31 because there was no more world to conquer. It says in the recessional, when the tumult and the shouting dies and the captains and the kings depart. And Rudyard Kipling wrote at that time, when all of this pride and all the reeking tube and iron shard of the cannon and the spear had finally been put to rest, when you look back at the shrieks, screams, and cries of the maimed and the dying, the victims of war or of disease who have gone before, before the eyes of the eternal Creator God, all of human history is as but a brief moment in time. To us, we think it is ancient. It extends back in history so far. Things are so old. My father, time and again, portrayed his life as the time that had spanned 
that period of technological development from the excitement he knew as a young boy when his dad would play a trick on him and say, kids, come quick, there goes a horseless carriage, and they would rush to the window to look, and it was a carriage being pulled by a mule. But it was so exciting because he thought he was going to see an automobile, and my father lived to go around the world about a hundred times in a modern jet aircraft in his one brief lifetime. All of this is developed. Get a perspective of history and look how quickly life goes by. It reminds me of the nursing home. A couple of old fellows were sitting out there and a lot of old folks get abandoned by their families in nursing home. and They didn't have any teeth and they were sitting there with nothing else to do but rock in a rocking chair in the front porch and these two women came around the side and saw them and one of them nudged the other one and said, Gertie, why don't we go give old George and Hank there a real thrill today? What do you say we streak them? And the other lady, oh, we couldn't do that. Yeah, come on, let's have a little fun. So finally, reluctantly, she did. And here came these two little old ladies without a stitch on, just running, hobbling over you. One of them with a cane, you know, went by as fast as they could go. One old boy looked at the other one and said, did you see that? And the other one said, yeah, what were they wearing? And, and the other old boy says, I don't know, but it sure did need ironing. <laughs> you know? Well, forgive me a little levity. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, don't we? The earthen vessel that was my mother, Mrs. Loma Dillon Armstrong, has long these years been moldering in a grave. The earthen vessel, it was my brother Richard David Armstrong, is in a grave. Only a short while ago, about a month or so, maybe a month and a half now, I forget, because time goes by so fast, we laid to rest my wife's brother, Bob, up there near the rest of his family in Gladewater, where Mr. Papa Hammer, who donated the original property and helped develop it in Big Sandy years ago, is laid to rest alongside his son, Dick, who died diabetes when he was but a teenager. So my dad, my mom, my brother Dick, all molder in their graves an earthen clay vessel that is now gradually disintegrating and being destroyed. We have, we possess, we own, God has given us a treasure. Treasure. Jesus said, when you understand the truth about the Word of God, the Kingdom of God, the Gospel of God, the fact that you can live for all eternity if you cry out to God for the forgiveness of your sins and you offer yourself a living sacrifice and say to him, I have sinned, forgive me, O Lord, and give me of your Holy Spirit. He said, you become a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, and that you be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and how frail they are, and what a short time they last, and the aches and the pains and the problems that they give us. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And then he says, we're troubled, distressed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not destroyed. Verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might finally be made evident, manifest, and of course right now during this life, in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made evident in our mortal flesh. 
Notice dropping down a little bit in verse 16, For which cause we faint not, for though our outward man perish, every single day you die a little bit. The older you get, the faster that process seems to accelerate, the quicker the wrinkles appear, the more the aches and the pains and the debilities plague you, the less time completely free from pain you seem to enjoy, and the day of your death is absolutely, irrevocably approaching. Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now, God describes it over 1 Corinthians 3, and I won't turn to that, as building materials of wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones, 50-50. And Jesus, of course, talked about those who would build a house on sand that would be eroded beneath the foundation as opposed to those who would build their spiritual house on a rock. So what do you really do when you move into a tent? on a piece of property with some building materials around. You're only living there temporarily because when you finish your house, you're going to move into it. So does the Feast of Tabernacles picture the fact that you're going to live in a ramshackle booth for all eternity? Said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. When the Israelites, and get this analogy because it is beautiful, when the Israelites came through that 40 years walk in the wilderness, that older generation down to but a few men like Caleb and Joshua, and the entire older generation, including Moses, died. In the loins of that generation was a future generation of Israel. In the wilderness, during their wanderings, as these millions, more, more than three million of them perhaps, consorted in their tents and marched and paused and had all the experiences at the waters of Meribah and all the other places where God had to rebuke them and chide them like the rebellion of Korah and all of the great tumultuous events of that 40 years of rebellion and dealing with God and his tabernacle with the great infolding flame and the blazing flame by night and the huge big black spiraling cloud by day. That entire older generation bore in their loins a new generation who inherited the promised land, the new generation, not conceived in Egypt, conceived in trial, conceived in wandering, conceived in booths, conceived in a temporary tabernacle in a tent or a ramshackle booth were the babies who grew some of them were 38 and 9 and nearly 40, but there were millions of them who were under 40 years of age who walked dry shod across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. And what was the name of the one who led them? His name is pronounced identical, identically with that of Jesus, Yahshua. Yahshua led them across the river into the Promised Land. And what did he lead? A brand new, never-before-born generation of Israelites who had never known Egypt, but had been engendered after God broke the hold of Egypt on their parents. What is going to walk into the kingdom of God? An ugly, torn-down, frail little booth made of the boughs of palm trees that have long since dried up and are about to blow away in the wind? Or... A beautiful mansion made of the finest of stone and gold and silver and the gorgeous emeralds and stones of all kinds that 
give off beautiful light, a permanent dwelling home, a place to dwell and to live when you move into the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ inspired this to be written. Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, and we can only see each other physically, this physical clay pot in which we live, but of the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, aren't they? They are temporary. They're only here for a while. Max is here, but only one of his legs is accompanying him. There are people here that are missing other parts and organs, but they're here. Missing digits, but they are here. The new creature in Christ is here. Though this human physical body is filled with pain and aches and debilities, the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which you can't see are eternal. There's something about you I can't see. I can detect it by your actions, the look out of your eye, by the way you are with each other, by the things you say, but I can't see it. Any more than I can see electricity, I can only see what it does. The Spirit in Christ, the Spirit of Christ, together with your human spirit, that new, tender little creature in Christ. It is a brand new, never before, first time only, unique spirit being I can't see. But I can tell whether or not it's developing, whether or not it's growing, whether or not you and your clay pot with your building materials are gradually every day adding to it and whether it's taking shape in the same way that a fetus in a mother's body every single day feeding from her bloodstream is gradually taking shape in the little fingers and toes beginning to appear. Now men divided into chapters, but not God. Chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved in acid or by a Peterbilt truck or by a bullet or a gun wound or by old age or moldering in the grave, we have a building of God and house, not a tent, not made with hands, spiritually formed, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, we yearn, not for a Cadillac and a game show, but for the only being and form of being which is going to survive Gehenna and survive right on through the time when the entire earth will melt with fervent heat. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, a heavenly house, because it's formed because of your communion, because this time the umbilical is not to a mother's bloodstream, but directly to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is in heaven. And therefore the strength and the nutrition and the food that forms this spiritual being comes pouring, flowing continually down from heaven as you commune with heaven. Many people are very careless about the spirit being which is gradually forming in them, as many mothers we read of are careless, and they drink all sorts of terrible substances and smoke and take drugs, and they have fetuses that are born that are absolutely sick unto death. Many of them die. Many of them are brain damaged. Many of them will never be right. They'll never learn correctly. They are handicapped. They're missing bits and pieces of their body. They're horribly disfigured. Where a wise mother does what? Talking to a young mother yesterday at lunch. She wouldn't even have tea. Of course not. You don't drink tea or coffee. No alcohol. You don't get near a cigarette. 
You keep everything going into your mouth as pure and undefiled, as free from chemicals and pollutants as you possibly can because you know something is being formed inside of you that is precious. You love your babies. You love your children. How precious they are when they come out and take that first breath and you say, oh honey, it's a boy. How careful are you as a mother and a father to make sure what is forming in that womb is beautiful with all the fingers and toes and everything in place and with good eyesight. My wife and I have had the experience of seeing two babies born, we discovered later, did not have all of their senses, could not hear. Brilliant minds capable of learning and becoming fine young men, but they couldn't hear. So we've had both the excitement and the wondrous experience of our son Mark, who has all of his faculties, and our other boys that we love more than ourselves, but nevertheless, the terrible ache that it is over decades and decades of your life that they cannot hear the voice of their father or their mother. If we could go back and if we had known that there was anything at all in our past that we could know, we should have done differently. We would have done it if it would have meant David and Matthew could have been born hearing. Now take that to a spiritual analogy. What will you give in exchange for the being that is forming inside of you? What will you trade for it? What's worth more than it is? Some of you people act and you live like your car is worth more than that. You act and you live like your place in a cafeteria line is worth more than that. You act and you live like money or your pocketbook or getting ahead or shaving your income tax or cutting corners in a business deal is more important than that little tender thing being formed inside of you. And as surely as you act that way, it's like a mother saying, go ahead and give me another cigarette and I will pollute the fetus being formed inside of my body. It says, If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. We want to be born full-term, beautiful, whole, spiritual, and healthy in God's kingdom. For we that are in this tabernacle... Now, what is the Feast of Tabernacles obviously all about? Sure, it anticipates the kingdom. Just as the Israelites in 40 years of living in booths anticipated the promised land. But once they moved into the promised land, they got busy with the chisels and they began to quarry rock and stone and they built permanent homes of brick and mortar, didn't they? Stone. And they moved in to permanent dwelling places. When they got to the promised land, they didn't act like they were already in the promised land by living in a booth. Yet even after they dwelt in those permanent homes every single year, God said, move out of it and build you a little booth, even if you do it on your rooftop or your backyard, and live in a booth, because I want you to remember that I made Israel to dwell in booths for 40 years when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. What is the rich tapestry of the Feast of Tabernacles really all about? It is about the fact that you and I are temporal, that we are mortal, that we are merely a clay vessel, a human physical body in which is something immortal, spiritual, eternal, which will eventually be released from this body as I could take this coat off and throw it away, and the old body is gone and moldering in the grave, and something bright and beautiful and new is born to enter into the kingdom of God. 
we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Do you want to die at, say, 2.30 today? I don't think there's ever been a time, as I've said before, my wife and I have said, oh, it's a gorgeous day, let's go shop for our funeral plot. Pretty day out there. Let's go straight to the cemetery and see which one we want. It never occurs to you in this human physical life to make that kind of a preparation on a beautiful day. Yet that day is going to approach. I don't want to die. I hope that I won't fear death when it comes and that I will never let go of my conviction and my belief and that I will preserve the little thing that has begun to be developed and has been engendered in me. But I will stand there, as it says, concentrating on Christ, looking unto Jesus as the eternal author of our salvation. Even as Stephen, when he was dying, didn't just think about Jesus, God let him see him. Wasn't that comforting? Wouldn't that be unbelievable for us at the moment of death, for God to roll back to heavens and say, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That made the Jews so angry they couldn't kill him fast enough. Stephen didn't care. He was beyond caring. I see him. There he is. Boy, what courage to take the last rock in the temple. What courage, because he knew that this physical life is nothing compared to eternity. Now, he that has brought us for the self-same thing is God, who has given us the earnest of his Spirit. Therefore, we're always confident knowing that while we're at home, we, the new Spirit, the new creature in Christ, are at home in the body. We are absent. We're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Notice in verse 16, Henceforth, we don't know people after the flesh. We don't evaluate. We don't interrelate and interface with people according to human, mundane, physical, carnal principles. We don't evaluate and judge them based upon man's judgments according to the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, when of a human being walking among them, now henceforth know we him no more. He's gone to be at the right hand of God in heaven. Therefore, if any man be constituted in begotten by, part and parcel with, be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Let's turn to Ecclesiastes, the twelfth chapter. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, twelfth chapter. Verse 1, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the, day, the years draw nigh, when you shall say, I have no pleasure in them, because that's the way the quality of life is when people become a little bit elderly. While the sun or the light of the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out of the windows be darkened. Tragedy, death stalks in the streets. Life is nearing its end, and the door shall be shut in the streets when the sound of grinding is low, and he shall rise up with the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Also when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond trees shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a plague or a burden, and desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. Or ever the silver cord be loosed. 
or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain like a clay vessel that is shattered, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was and from whence it came, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this new creature in Christ dwelling in a temporary tabernacle. Turning to Second Peter and the first chapter to close, Second Peter 1. Peter wrote, Wherefore, brethren, verse 10, Give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things you shall never fall. For so an infant shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and to be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it fitting, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me. We are new creatures in Christ dwelling temporarily in these human physical tabernacles to be released and to be received into God's kingdom. And yes, the Feast of Tabernacles presages or anticipates or looks forward to the kingdom of God. But we cannot act out being there because we're just not quite that far along yet. The best we can do is act out how we would like to be when we eventually receive eternal life into the kingdom of God. Well, I hope you've learned something new today, something a little fuller, a little deeper than you knew before. And I hope that you understand the importance of that little creature that is inside of you of preserving and protecting it and keeping it from every kind of pollutant, mental, physical, amoral of some sort, spiritual, fleshly, and that you preserve and protect it the same way a young mother would a fetus that is being developed.